Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, well, we're in a series in Genesis <clears throat> And we're looking at the question of providence through this entire season. Uh, We're asking, where did we come from? Why are we here? What's going on? And as we've come to Genesis chapter 4, today we're going to talk about a topic that I, I think is very appropriate heading into Thanksgiving, sibling rivalry. Right? I mean, nothing stirs it up like the Thanksgiving table, right? Right? As you take a bite of that great Thanksgiving meal and that brother or sister, maybe you haven't seen in a few weeks or a few months, all of a sudden says something and it is on, right? You're right back into that. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Sibling rivalry, divine lineage. That's what we're talking about today. In Genesis chapter 4, I want to provide just a little bit of introductory context for us. We begin to see what life looks like outside of Eden. And it's very different from within Eden. The next eight chapters of Genesis are going to introduce us to just how different life becomes outside the garden by the expansive and pervasive and accelerating spread of sin The Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that sin entered through one man and brought death to all. That was Adam. And now we begin to see the effect of that sin and that death upon others. You see, sin spreads with a compounding pervasiveness and expansiveness. But God preserves his faithful witness in order to multiply his glory on the earth. Maybe you've heard the old adage or remember it said in some way that you may be able to count the number of trees in the forest, but you can never know exactly how many trees are in a single seed. Think about that. It's pretty incredible to consider that one seed sprouts a tree and that tree sprouts innumerable seeds. And and as far as it goes, they all came from that one Seed. And so it is we see in these chapters with sin that you might actually be able to count the number of sinful acts in a person's life, but you can neither know nor fathom the influence of one person's sin on another. We're going to see that too. And against this very dark understanding of sin's pervasive and expansive spread, There will come the light of the hope of the glory of Jesus Christ through the gospel that we will see. Today, I want you to walk away understanding this, that a hard heart towards God produces unlimited wickedness. But the heart surrendered to God produces a compounding glory, compounding glory. I want you to dwell on one question today as we walk through Genesis 4 and 5. And I want you to think about this. What kind of heart do I have toward God? What kind of heart do I have toward God? Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. 
Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker in the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. As Genesis chapter 4 opens, Adam and Eve give birth to Cain and then subsequently to Abel as well. And it tells us a little bit about each of them. Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel was a keeper of sheep. And in time, both of them brought an offering to the Lord. But there is a stark contrast that is drawn by God's response at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And it says this, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, nothing is said to tell us why it is that God had no regard for Cain. We are told, rather, how Cain responded. And it says he grew very angry with God. And so God addresses his anger and reminds him that the right action will, in fact, be accepted. And so we see that God rebukes Cain and warns him subsequently of sin's threat upon him, saying this, that if he does not master the sin that is threatening him and his heart at this time, that sin will come to master him. Now many have debated why it is that God rejected Cain's offering, and most of that debate centers around the fact that it was likely Cain's offering was of the fruit of the ground and did not include blood. For the Bible later tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. However, we're not given that insight at this point in Genesis. We don't know that at this point. And really, the point of the passage points us in a much different direction. You see, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters 4 all the way through chapters 11 really focus on two items in regards to what has taken place in chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity. And the first focus is this. It shows the depth of sin and how it permeates deeply into our life more than only outward actions. And secondly, it shows us the, that it, sin exerts a far greater influence than only the individual that is entangled within it. And so if we look at these two principal focuses that Genesis gives to us, we begin to see a different picture for why it is that God did not regard Cain and his offering, yet he did regard Abel and his. In verse 7, the word accepted is used. He says this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That word accepted there carries with it the sense to be in a right standing with God. In the New Testament, we use the word justification. That in Christ Jesus, by faith, we are justified before God. And this is the proposal that God is making to Cain. 
It reminds us of this, that while our righteousness in life is manifested in our good deeds, our righteousness in life is never determined by our deeds. Now this is important, friends, because this is one place where many people go awry in the scriptural teaching, believe that they are acceptable to God while all the while feeling the rejection, the separation, the condemnation of sin. You see, this, the point that God is making in the rejection of, of Cain's sacrifice is not the sacrifice itself that Cain offered, but rather the heart from which he offered it. And this is the reason that God rejects it. Friends, here is one of the most important truths that you will ever learn in trusting God. And it is stated in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when it says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God was searching for a king who would replace Saul. And he tells us that he was looking for a man after his own heart. And so he was looking at the heart of man to choose that man. And that man would ultimately become King David. But it tells us a principle of where it is that God looks upon us in our life. You see, we deceive ourselves when we think we're hiding the unrighteousness of our heart by only performing outward right deeds with a heart that fails to trust in God. Jesus teaches the importance of discerning the heart, of understanding how it is that sin permeates and pervades so deeply within us. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said, in other words, in the law, it says you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, what Jesus is teaching is helping us to understand and apply what Genesis is exposing and explaining to us here. The unrighteousness of heart casts sin's seed in unseen ways as much as the unrighteous deeds of our life do invisible ways think about this for a moment friends the influence of our life is as much yea even more determined by the unseen posture of a heart that is rebellious and hard towards God no matter how acceptable we've come to be with it even more so than the influence of unrighteous deeds do in visible ways. You see, righteous deeds that are done out of an unrighteous heart or the absence of faith are as evil before God as unrighteous deeds that manifest in themselves the full measure of a rebellious heart. This can be difficult to accept. Tim Keller Presbyterian pastor in New York City says it this way, that one of the distinctive acts of a Christian is not only to repent of our sin, 
but to repent of our unrighteous good deeds or even our righteous deeds because we know they in themselves do not save us. And what is he getting at? He's getting at the very point that is being made here in Genesis chapter 4 that when we do the right thing, out of the wrong heart motivation before God, it is as evil as when we just do the wrong thing out of a wrong heart. And that's what God is saying to Cain, and that's what Genesis is telling us. One might say that the greatest indicator of a right heart posture before God or a heart of faith is revealed in our readiness to listen to God and to receive, to heed his word and to obey it. That's the greatest indicator of a right heart posture before God. We don't come before God to offer him our right heart, but rather we come before God to offer our heart to him in order to receive what he says to us and to receive it as for us by faith in him. You see, if we stop at verse 7, we may be tempted to say God was too harsh on Cain. I mean, he didn't even give him him an opportunity to explain. But before we dare evaluate God's rejection, which I would strongly encourage you not to do, (laughs) that, that illustrates the very example that we're looking at today, right? Well, I don't think God was right in that. Yes, that's exactly what Cain thought. And that's the reason Cain found himself in the place he found himself. Before we evaluate God's rejection, consider Cain's response. For that crouching lion that God warned him of, that God warns us of in the New Testament, when Peter tells us, for Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. God's already told him the sin is crouching at your door. Every muscle is tensed, ready to pounce on you. You'll either master it or it will master you. And what happens? That crouching lion attacks and Cain gives full vent to his anger. Go to verse 8 with me. Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain goes to Abel and he says, you know what? If I can't be justified before God, 
I'll have my vengeance here on the earth. He invites Abel out into the field and there he attacks and kills him. You see, sin often enjoys venting its anger against God towards other people. And so God comes to Cain and he asks him, where is your brother Abel? It's interesting how parallel this question that God poses to Cain is to the question that God posed to Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 3. Note the similarity there of God's approach to people in their sin. There is a question that's posed with the purpose of conviction in mind. And it grants to us the opportunity to confess, to own that sin. But friends, when sin has mastered you, it never leads to any measure of honesty, only into deeper darkness and deception. And so Cain absolves any knowledge. But God is never fooled by sin's deception. And acknowledging what has happened to Abel, God curses Cain from his work. And he says that the ground and his work of it will no longer produce for him. And he sends him into wandering upon the earth. And then maybe one of the most familiar events to young parents occurs. This is what I would call a wine herd around humanity. Every parent of toddlers that can relate by the memory of their own child's most attention-getting, demanding public meltdown right in the line, right? I mean, that's what happens. Cain hits the ground. He starts hurling his body around, kicking and screaming, going, this isn't fair, God. It hurts. I don't like this. I don't want this. Blah, 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 blah. Complaining and griping in full meltdown, Cain begins to loathe God. And you see what happens is Cain claims that God's punishment is too great for him, but his complaint is only selfish to the core. It's really not about fairness. It's about injustice. Cain says, I don't want justice. I want to be unjust in my injustice. I want my way. I want to win. And that's the only thing I'll have. Selfish to the core. It is the advancement of sin's endless self-defending response. And so God marks Cain. Cain says, I'll be killed for what you've done to me. I'll lose my life. And God said, I can take care of that too. So I'll put a mark on you. And I will mark you so that all who see you know that you are protected by my own hand and will not be killed. And so it leaves us at the end of verse 16 with this imagery of Cain going away from the presence of the Lord. East of Eden. The imagery here through the literary form is really one of, of being lost on the horizon, headed continually away without turning to return. You see, God's mark means that he does not relent from sin's punishment or sin's consequence, but he shows compassion in the midst of our sin in order to lead us to repentance. That's what God is aiming at here. The sign provides another more powerful reminder as well to the rebellious, self-centered Cain. It says this, that though you loathe God, God loves you. That though you've cursed God, he cared for you. 
And though you offered to him what you yourself knew was not true in accordance to the posture of your heart, God gave to you what you were wholly unworthy of and showed compassion on you in your complaining. You see, the mark of sin's consequence sent Cain away because Cain refused to let his heart be broken and surrendered to God. Cain walked away from God because his heart was hard and his heart was full of self and self-centeredness. Friends, I want to remind you one more time how it is that the Bible from the very beginning teaches us that God comes to us in our sin. And that is with compassion through conviction. And that conviction offers an opportunity for us to hear and to heed, to listen, to believe, and to turn and repent. For the mark of sin's consequence on you, friends, does not have to be the final word on your life. It could have actually become a mark of grace that it was. That produced a testimony of praise to God for the forgiveness that he had given. But rather, Cain chose to let it be a mark of reminder of his own condemnation from his sin. And that's what it will be in our life as well if we remain hard-hearted and rebellious towards God. You see, Cain's mark and his expulsion to wondering didn't come as his death sentence. His death sentence came from his rebellious heart towards God. Even though his whole life was marked by God's grace and compassion. This is a troublesome thing, friends, because each of us in our own sin can be tempted to remain hard and rebellious to the things of God. You hear all of the commands from God's word that you don't mind adhering to, and you think, God, I should please you in these things. And God comes to us in the one place in our heart to which we're harboring that sin against him. Do you know why God does that? Do you think God likes to have the upper hand? No, what God is being is truthful to us when he does this. He's being loving and caring because it's in that one area where we harbor sin in our heart that breaks fellowship and causes separation from God. And until that is dealt with, we will not know the full intimacy of relationship with God. God loves us. That's why he comes to us with conviction, inviting us to turn in faith and to walk with him. And this is what we see in the life of Cain in the first 16 verses. Now, as we continue in verse 17 and forward, we'll see this, that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will come to celebrate. In verse 17 through 24, the writer of Genesis records Cain's lineage. And, and there surely is some, at some point, in some way, maybe some glimmer of good that is included within it. Maybe some of his children, some of their children. But what we see by the record of Genesis in this genealogy 
is we come to understand the incalculable influence of sin from Cain's life on his son, Lamech. That's what the writer is pointing us to as he walks through the genealogy of Cain and he apexes at Lamech, his seventh son. You see, Lamech came to advance Cain's sin to not only be a committer of wickedness, but to become a lover of the violence and the evil and the wickedness. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech says to his wives, and he's heralding himself here to them, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Friends, let me tell you what sin will do, not only in your life, but through your life and your influence upon others. It will take the grace of God and it will see it as a curse on your life and curse others by it. By your own influence. By the way that you live in rejection of God and in hardness towards God. Trying to be God, as Lamech says here, and trying to determine your course and path of life. You see, sin's expansive and pervasive effect fills the record of Cain's lineage apexing in his son Lamech. And Cain's wandering from sin drove his son to a compounded wickedness on countless others and the celebration of it in his own heart. But we do see a glimmer at the end of chapter 4 of what God is doing in the thread of redemption that is running through this. Look at the end of chapter 4, verse 25. Adam, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, God appoints another offspring for Eve, and through that offspring, he will provide a remnant of right offering, a remnant of righteousness to the Lord. This does not mean that Seth himself was righteous, but rather the heart of Seth was full of God like his brother Abel, and righteousness would come through that. And then we're told at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the first time in the history of humanity that this practice came in to play. And what began with an offering of worship at the beginning of chapter 4 now continues as the participation and the practice of worship among people. You see, Genesis is showing us that from the heart of one begins to spread sin and glory. And so it will zoom out to inconceivable proportions in the chapters to come. But it is casting our eye and asking of our own heart, which heart will we be full of as we follow the Lord or wander away from him? You see, the whole of chapter 5 records Seth's lineage. And there is a stark contrast that is drawn between chapter 5 and Seth's lineage and Cain's lineage in chapter 4. It apexes at the mention of Enoch. And maybe you're familiar with Enoch, but here's what the Bible says of Enoch, that Enoch walked with God. 
and he was no more. Do you know what that is teaching us? That there is a reward for the righteous that the wicked cannot touch. There is a reward for those who trust and obey and walk with God that will not be taken away. The New Testament teaches us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading and will not pass away. What God gives to those who are his cannot be taken by Satan and his. Friends, people matter to God. You matter to God. And God recognizes those who walk with him. The psalmist says the eyes of God are upon the righteous. He watches over their way. And the righteous walk of Seth's life mattered. Not only for Seth and all of those he would influence. But all of that is true because it mattered to God. For Seth and to be a blessing to his lineage. Two genealogies provide a stark contrast in the ones that they highlight. You see, this is not about Cain and Seth, but it is about the way they lived their life and who was the center of their life and what that life ultimately produced because of it. Lamech became the epitome of Cain's corruption, peculiarly and particularly in the wickedness of his own life. Seth was the one through whom God would choose to preserve And Enoch came from him. And in the very next chapter, we will come face to face with another very familiar name, Seth's son, Noah, who God will choose to preserve a remnant of righteousness for himself when he destroys the earth by water. You see, the effect and full condemnation of Cain's sin is most pronounced in the way it compounded upon and through his lineage. Friends, I want you to understand today that a hard heart towards God produces unlimited wickedness, but the heart surrendered to God produces compounding glory. And this we must understand and receive by faith because it grants to us a vision for the way that we walk and the way that we live our life. Worship is the bookend of Genesis 4. It begins in an act of worship and it culminates in the practice of worship. But not in the way we often think about it. You see, before worship becomes something that you attend, first and foremost, worship is comprised of what it is that you attend to in your life. And Genesis 4, in showing the rapid, expansive, and pervasive spread of sin through humanity, shows also the compounding influence of glory by surrendered humility through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin hardens the heart towards God to make wicked one's living, but a heart surrendered to God walks in his blessing to produce a compounding glory. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat 
of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon that law he meditates day and night. There is a difference between the wicked and the righteous. And what Genesis 4 and 5 are teaching us, the difference is not principally determined by what you uh, uh, produce or participate in with your life, though that's important. We'll see in a moment. It is determined by the posture of your heart before God. I want to provide three applications for you today of how your life will either be consumed with following Jesus or it will be consumed by wandering farther and farther away from Him. The first application I want to offer to you today is this, that the orientation of your heart towards God, either in rebellion or in full surrender, determines how you will follow Him in life. As we call upon the Lord or as we worship Him, we are reminded not to overlook the posture of our own heart. You see, only offering an acceptable, uh, or excuse me, an only, let me try one more time. (laughs) The offering that is acceptable to God is only one that is offered from a heart of faith. God rejects the offering from a hard heart. And there are many ways that we can harden our heart. And and one temptation that we may have today is to say, so if God does not receive the offering or the act of worship from a hard heart, then should we not offer it until the heart is made right? And I would say the heart cannot be made right until the offering is made and we know whether God regards it. Or does not. Friends, I want you to see the relationship between your practice and your posture today because there's a very important application for us to find in this. You see, we should not wait until the heart is right, until we make the offering to God, because we cannot make the heart right. Only God can. And it is through the very practice and participation of our life in worship that we come to see whether our heart is fully acceptable to God. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceptive above all, even deceiving the one of whose heart it is. And so we entrust ourselves to God. Faith demands that we listen to God, not only in the things that we like or that we want to hear from him, but in the things that we're not ready to receive and don't want to hear from him. That's what faith does. And God never expects that you come before him having rightly oriented your own heart. Jesus teaches in the New Testament that if you're making your offering there at the altar and you realize in that instant that, that there, is, there is a brokenness between you and someone else, that you leave your offering on the altar and you go and you make it right and then you come back and finish the work. You see, it's through the practice of making the offerings to God, that the conviction comes to us because we have so adequately learned to ignore, to dismiss, to sweep under the proverbial rug or just forget about our own sin. But God loves us too much to leave us in sin even that is forgotten by us. He brings it back that it might be offered to him that he can cleanse our heart 
Replace it with the light of the glory of his truth. And we can walk in righteousness with him. The act of our offering to God becomes the catalyst for our conviction to repentance. You see, that's why you can walk into a church service and you can do everything that you thought possible to do to get right with God. And in the phrase of a song, in the simple statement or even a word of a sermon, in a word, in a prayer, that didn't in any way necessarily or inherently have anything to do personally with you can be the very act that God uses to prick the heart and to invite you into repentance. I love it when someone comes up to me and goes, Pastor, such a good word today when you said ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. That was totally for me. And I'm like, I don't think I ever said ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. I can't take any credit for that. That last part was a joke. (laughs) That's because God uses the actions of man to fulfill the will of God. The question is, will the heart of the people be ready to receive the word of God by faith? The posture of our heart in a readiness to receive or a hardness to reject, either readies us to walk with God by faith and repentance and confession unto godliness, or to wander farther and farther away from Him in rebellion and hardness. The second application I want to offer to you today is this, that what you adore in your heart and practice with your life becomes a catalyst for others to advance and to develop either for blessing or for curses. This narrative does not tell us that our actions are not important. Actually, it tells us quite the opposite. It explains why our actions are so important. You see, the practices of our life are important. They're just not primary before God. That's what's important for us to understand. Because they expose and they reinforce what it is that we've adored in our heart. And when we feel ourselves going through the motions, so often we get frustrated and we reach the end of ourselves because we're just what? Going through the motions. And what so often the first thing that we stop doing, we stop going through the motions. We identify the motion that we're going through that's wearing us out, and we go, okay, I'm just gonna stop that because that's what's wearing me out. When so often the first of those motions that we are going through are the righteous practices of life, and what's taking place is God is speaking to us through those to and saying the reason that the righteous practices of your life are wearing you out is because the posture of your heart is not aligned is not true to the practices that you're holding with your life. But when our motions are right, friends, we need to look more deeply into what's generating them, the motivations for our motions. God deals with what is filling our heart to produce righteousness from glory from your life. God doesn't want you just to go through the motions. That's why he doesn't come to you and go, good for you. You've pleased me. No, that's why he comes to us and he brings encouragement. Where? Just to the outward expression? No, to the inner being, man. When we are encouraged, we feel a strength spiritually and soulfully from God that gives us strength to face whatever the wind that is blowing against us. 
That's what God does for us. He deals with us at the very core of our being. Why? Because God looks on the heart when we look on the appearance. God's transforming us from within. God's made us new. He's taken a heart of stone and he's given us a heart of flesh that we might know him, that our heart might beat for him, that every coursing of our blood through our life might be more, Jesus, more and more like him every day and more and more influence for him with all for whom we are around. God deals with what is filling our heart that he might remove the wickedness and the evil that sin has stained us with and put in it the light of the glory of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we might walk in the peace and the love and the joy that he and he alone gives. You see, friends, worship in its truest sense is not just about what we do when we gather. It is about the whole of how we live our life. And worship from a surrendered heart will know and walk in God's blessing in order to be a blessing for other people. The more you walk with God and the more deeply and intimately you know God, the less and less and less your life will be focused on you. You won't have anything to complain about. You won't have anything to be disgruntled or bitterness with about God because regardless of how bad the world gets against you God is still for you and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world but you got to believe that if you're going to live and walk by it but worship that is hard-hearted and rebellious that comes and offers something to the name of God out of a heart that is full of self it may interact with God But it only produces a life of wandering farther from him. And a life of greater influence towards wickedness upon others. Your life will either be consumed with following Jesus. Or consumed with wandering farther and farther away from him. There is no in between. You are never standing still holding your ground. Worship. What you hold in your heart and practice with your life determines the direction of your life to wander from or walk in God's blessing. Let me give you a simple formula. Adoration plus practice is worship. And worship determines the direction and the production, the outcome of your life. The third application. The mark of God's grace will either be a point of greater rebellion or a point of reminder for greater gratitude for you and for your lineage. Cain provides a model for us of how to wander far from God in two ways. The first way is self-righteousness. We wander far from God by deception of self-righteousness. Cain saw everything in light of this, how he saw himself. And the more full he was of himself, the more everything either served him or opposed him. And that was his bitterness, resentment, and anger with God. And he guarded himself and protected himself instead of entrusting himself from God. And the second way that we wander away from God is very near the first, only with a different cloak. It's religious righteousness. And so we put before God our own good deeds and we say to God, it's not about me, it's about the good that I have done. But in fact, that's a smokescreen because religious righteousness is nothing more than self-righteousness with the religious cloak put over it. 
Cain begins by knowing God, but he failed to honor him and praise him. And Romans 1 tells us that when we fail to honor God, to thank him, and to praise him, it darkens our thinking about God because he doesn't look like us. And it leads us further away from him. And Cain's sin marked him by a life of wandering farther from God when it could have, and the purpose God gave it should have, marked him as the evidence of grace all over his life. Look at all that I did against God, and yet he still showed compassion on me. Friends, that's a testimony that will preach. But you got to be willing to receive it. Let me ask you this. Is there greater gratitude to God in all things growing in your heart? I mean, on a daily basis, when you're confronted with the good or the bad, are you thankful to God for the good? Or are you looking to God in light of what's taking place, the hardships or the bad? Or do those things simmer greater anger and resentment and bitterness over something? You see, you don't have to look at everything with bitterness and anger. Are you looking at anything with it? anything the whole tree doesn't have to be bad doesn't have to be a tree of wicked a wickedness it starts as a seed of wickedness a seed of sin but you have no idea how many trees are held within that seed if you let it take root in your life as you consider be careful not to react like Cain and try to fix things yourself Righteous deeds alone in your life will never balance sin's ledger and will never earn you right standing with God. It's only when you let God deal with the posture of your heart will you find your sin atoned, forgiven, and cleansed and the light of the glory of God's truth replacing it. The surrendered heart that walks by faith and humility and repentance will cast its seed to produce a far greater glory for God than one could have imagined. A hard heart towards God produces unlimited wickedness. But the heart surrendered to God produces compounding glory. What is filling your heart today? Let's pray.